Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Alan Minsky and Harvey Kay, mm -hmm. who uh, wrote a book about my favorite president, yeah, FDR. Yeah, and so. they also have a very uh, constructive critique of progressives. Um, mm -hmm. So they have both the sort of like the actual critique and also some suggestions for how they could do better in terms of persuading the American people and putting forward an economic agen agenda that would actually benefit the American people too. They did a video uh, with the Gravel Institute, and I think I may have covered it on my show where it's titled something like the greatest speech ever most given. Most radical speech? I, I yeah, most know, radical like speech that. ever given by yeah. an American president. And it's the very famous economic Bill of Rights speech, the new Bill of Rights speech from um, FDR. I mean, I guess you could say that or the military industrial complex speech from Dwight Eisenhower, like the best or the most radical or, you know, free Prussian. slave speech, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, but... Um, it, it's for people who haven't seen it, and they probably have. If they if they watch your stuff and watch my stuff and watch our stuff, it, a lot of people probably have seen it. But if you go back and watch that FDR speech, you're like, oh, this is how presidents used to talk when they weren't totally owned by Lockheed Martin and Pfizer. Yeah, and then you fast forward. I played a clip of um, Bill Clinton. Oh, I know the his, one you're talking in about. his era where he's like. No president can guarantee you a job. Right. It's like, think of how far they've fallen from FDR literally saying, like, no, this is your this is your right. It's a right. Yeah. Literally a right. You have a right to a job. Yes, indeed. Even I don't even know if Bernie would say that. Would Bernie say that? I don't know if he believes in a federal job guarantee, does he? He did. Yeah. Oh, he, he ran, did. Yeah, okay. he ran on federal job guarantee. Okay. Okay. Yes, he Got did. It. I actually think um, he should have emphasized that more than he did. I mean, Medicare for all obviously is very popular, extremely important and, you know, a great, great messaging as well. But um, I would have liked to have see seen him uh, lean in more to the federal jobs guarantee. Because what's funny is that when you say that, if conservatives are like, I'm against that, that's stupid. It's like, you're anti-job? It's very like, popular. It's very popular. People having a job? Yeah, because there was a whole like debate uh, in the weeds kind of debate uh, between the Yang people who were into UBI, UBI versus, versus yeah. jobs guarantee. Personally, I think you could do both. But um, yeah, Bernie yeah. was into it. Um, so anyway, before we get to that, I know you uh, queued up a little clip here for me of my favorite CNBC mm, host, Jim Cramer. One of the wrongest people on the entire planet. You, did you know I was on his show a number of times? Really? I've been on his show too, but you I have. did not know that you had been on it yet. Okay, but I, I mean, wasn't on, like, you were probably on for realsies, like you were a guest on, right? Uh, yes, yeah. See, I was on, back in um, high school, we had an economics teacher named Mr. Gurney, and he would give people extra credit and give them, I think it counted as like an A, if you got on Jim Cramer's show. What? And so he has a segment where the people call in and they're like, and, and they go, booyah, Jim. And then they, I guess they ask about a stock. I don't remember exactly. That's what they say to start. Yeah, you have to go, booyah, Jim. And he's like, a big booyah to you, buddy. What's on your mind? And then you're like, oh, what do you think of the stock? Dick balls. <laughs> he's like, I'm selling dick balls. <laughs> he's pressing buttons and shit. So anyway, since it counted as extra credit, and since I don't like doing my regular schoolwork, I think I was on his show three times. Really? So I called up. And we still, Cor I think Corin still has the footage. Yeah. He still has the footage of him and me, I think, <laughs> on there. You can hear my little high school. Hey, Jim. My balls haven't dropped yet. How are you doing? <laughs> like, All right, kiddo. Please. Do you remember what you asked him about? I don't fucking remember what you I don't asked remember? him about. I may have asked him about, one time I may have asked him about a golf stock probably, like Calgary mm, Golf or something. That fits. That yeah. definitely fits. But anyway, he just funny. makes shit up. Like, 
That's what people don't understand is he just makes shit up. So now I'm questioning myself. I don't know if I would. I feel like I would, but maybe I wasn't. Well, I don't know. I've did been MSNBC I've been collaborate on, with CNBC? Not that much, actually, okay, but so I did do a bunch of CNBC hits it's, independently yeah. as well. Anyway, okay. they're all kind of the same to me, but okay. yeah. So um, recently, uh, obviously, the stock market has kind of been in free fall, not going well. And one of the uh, major problems and that sort of triggered the latest meltdown is Amazon came out with net negative earnings. And of course, Amazon, giant behemoth, has their hands in everything from it's a tech stock, but it's also retail, it's global supply chain issues. And they said that whereas during the pandemic, they were having trouble hiring enough people. And that's partly because their entire business model, and this is documented, their whole plan is to basically burn through workers on a right, roughly three, three year time frame. So they were running out of bodies to like feed like grist into the mill of their uh, terrible working conditions. Now they're saying, actually, we have too many workers. Um, that doesn't mean they're gonna lay people off. They'll probably just let that organic like using and abusing of people run its course till they get down to the level that they want. So anyway, this sparks a conversation between Jim Cramer and whoever this other anchor dude, CNBC anchor dude is about what it is Amazon should do. Let's take a listen to what they have to say. One stock performer. The, the issue here is they're out of warehouse space, David. They need it. They are out of warehouse space, but they do have Amazon. So does, does, uh, where does Jassy pull back from David? If he has too many. Certainly, maybe Staten Island. That sounds cool. Five well. David. David's pro union. Yeah, no, I don't know where they pull back. So he just throws out there, like, maybe Amazon should get rid of that warehouse in Staten Island. And then even make sure to mention it's not going well for them because of the pro-union vote. Right, yeah. I'm sure that's why. Which is also, number one, there's no indication that it's, quote, not going well for them. And number two... They don't have a contract yet. If you Right. The, the union doesn't even have a contract yet, which is a problem. But uh, also, if you know anything reasonably about business, you know that Amazon really needs that uh, capacity in the New York City area. Where else are you going to go? You know, where if you... All right, you open a warehouse somewhere else in New York City area, you're very likely to face a union drive there as well. So anyway, it's stupid and bad and wrong. And it reminds me also of when this uh, initially happened and he was talking about, do you remember this? We covered this on Breaking Points. Kramer was talking both about Starbucks and Amazon. And he was saying the problem with unions is that you can't force people to work hours that they don't want to work. Yeah, that was his that. issue is basically like you can't just order them around like automatons. They're actually going to have a say. Oh, my God. How terrible is that? Yeah. I mean, think about how authoritarian his ideal system is. Right. His system is like you work when the boss says and that's it. Yeah. There's no talk There's back. No There's no, I got to pick up my kid. My right. mom is sick. I got to do, I got to go to a doctor's appointment in the morning because I got this thing I got to get looked at. None of that. Because if you actually believe in markets, there's a very simple answer to, oh, there's a, a shift that people generally don't want to work. Guess what? You pay people more for that shift and then you're going to have sufficient workers to cover the hours that you need to cover. But they don't actually want to have that market give and take. They want to just be the dictators in the workplace. And that's what Amazon has long been. They don't they're not really honest with themselves about what they support. You know what I mean? Like Correct. they don't. They, it's like you kind of just do support wage slavery. Like that is sort of your position. Yeah. Position is like you work for me. Don't talk back. You do what I say. And so like the majority of the time where you spend your waking hours, you have zero freedom. 
you know, and then in the next breath, and this is what get this is what pisses me off to no end about these sorts of people. In the next breath, they'll like sing the virtues of the West and and uh, political democracy, and it's like, well, but you don't believe in democracy economically at all. It's it's it, you only pr you know pretend to support it in name only when it comes to politics. But then even if you if you even if you mention like, can we do direct democracy when it comes to politics? Like, no, 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 no. That's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's rule right. by the horde. That's that's exactly right. And because your point about they he really sort of supports wage slavery and like a dictatorial atmosphere within the workplace is also very classist because I'm sure he doesn't support that for himself or his One colleagues at CNBC. Correct. If he was just being, you know, ordered around, like he would certainly have something to say about that. He's got an agent who, you know, and he has power because of his position there and because of the amount of money that he makes and because of the relationships that he has. So he's able to negotiate a deal that works for him, but he doesn't want regular working class people who are, you know, involved in getting goods, I'm sure, to his doorstep mm -hmm. um, in a day or in, in two days. He doesn't want them to have any modicum of that same say within the workplace. So the NLRB announced a few days ago that they're really going after Starbucks. There's this lawsuit, this big lawsuit that they're doing against Starbucks. And with him saying that, first of all, you can tell by his face he knows what he's saying. Like he knows that he's very intentional. He's undermining. Yeah. Uh, fuck, I forgot my point, though. NLRB. I had a great Starbucks. Um, oh, that if they if they were to, even though they wouldn't say we're good, we're done with the Staten Island facility, then there might be a lawsuit over that because it's clearly because of the unionization. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't correct. Just, oh, you're unionizing now. You're all immediately fired because that actually is against the law. Now, the problem is it's rarely enforced and there's all these loopholes. And yeah. You can kind of weasel out of accountability. But. but that would be too obvious that that's what they're doing. Yes. Well, this is why it really matters who is running the NLRB and who is right, staffing yeah. the NLRB. Because, yeah, under the Trump administration, Amazon could probably casually close that warehouse and get away with it. Without um, a doubt. And, you know, all of these, there have been multiple actual suits from the NLRB against Starbucks at this point. Some of them about uh, some of the workers that they fired, which seems clearly like retaliation because they were union organizers and then they come after them. Um, one of them is about actually they went through their employee handbook and they're like, literally the stuff that you're saying you do in your employee handbook is illegal. <laughs> um, so on a massive nationwide basis, like you're just like out and out admitting you violate the labor law routinely. And you had early on in both the Amazon and the Starbucks union drives, you had key NLRB decisions that went in favor of the workers. For example, Starbucks was really trying to delay the process and they were trying to say, um, we want all of the Starbucks in Buffalo to have to vote because we think that's the bargaining unit instead of these individual stores. Obviously, that would be a much greater organizational challenge. And so the NLRB actually enforced the law and sided with the workers in this case, very likely none of that happens under a Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So yes, right now with Biden in the White House and an NLRB that has actually been, you know, neutral and neutral means uh, siding with the workers in these, in these instances where the corporations are violating the law, um, it is very likely that under Biden, Amazon, you know, probably could not get away with that, or they, at least they feel like it would be much more difficult to just close this warehouse. And I also think from a business perspective, I don't think they have the luxury of doing that. This is a gigantic warehouse. It employs something like 8,000 workers. It's really critical for their ability to just operate in the New York City metro area. So it's not so easy. You know, the one in Bessemer, 
they could probably, that one they could probably close and figure out some other town that's economically distressed that they could move to if they wanted to. You can't just move out of the largest metro well, region in the country, even, you know? Even if they tried, you're going to need another warehouse somewhere close by. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So where do you go? Do you go to northern Westchester? Do you go to Putnam County, Hudson? Like, what do you do? And by the way, if you decide on doing that, what happens? Well, that's a massive upfront investment. So it's going to cost you money anyway. Might as well stay where you are now and pay the extra $2 an hour and give better, better benefits. And you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. There, you know, we saw John Deere, the John Deere protests, the Don, John Deere, excuse me, strikes. Yeah. They worked. They yeah. got a better contract. Is John Deere belly up? Like, it, it, well, how about at Starbucks? Um, already the union drives, uh, which have been extraordinarily successful. I think the latest now is like 67 Starbucks unionized now. A year ago, it was none. I mean, it's incredible, right? What they've done in such a short period of time. And Howard Schultz, the, the founder, has been brought back in as CEO. They're doubling down on union busting. But one of the things that they did is they said, fine, we're going to raise pay and benefits for everybody across the board, except the union members. But they're trying to argue on the one hand that voting to join a union isn't going to help you. You might end up with less pay. You might end up with less benefits at the same time that they're saying totally like not related to that. We're going to lift your pay. Amazon did the same thing. Um, so already just the threat of these union drives is actually improving conditions for workers across the board. But will they put that? Will people piece that together? I don't know. You know, I mean, like literally the only reason you're getting this is because of the threat of a union. Yes. Which, I, yes. I don't know. I mean, I think that it is a very different moment for workers, though, which is why you see so many Starbucks filing for elections, like over 250 or something now across the country that have filed for union elections. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Chris uh, says that Chris Small says that every single Amazon warehouse in the country has re reached out to him at this point about organizing. So I do think there is a different People are seeing through some of the anti-union rhetoric at this point. Well, that's that's a good thing. Uh, to bring it back to Kramer, he um, not only is he clearly vicious and anti-worker and he always sides with management and he wants to, you know, punish people who don't obey. Mm. But this is also a guy, just so you understand, who's perpetually wrong about everything. Correct. Like, it yes. is astonishing how wrong. The only person who holds a candle to him is Bill Crystal, who's also been, <laughs> he has just a, a litany Remarkably of wrong. dead wrong predictions about everything. Um, John Stewart really dressed him down because leading up to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, he was out on his show and he was saying very famously, you know, buy Bear Stearns. Was it Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers? Whichever one actually went under, or did they both go Lehman. under? Lehman. Okay. Well, I think they did both go under. I think under. they both went under, yeah. too. But he was out there in the weeks leading up to it where he's literally telling people, buy it. You want to buy it now because it's going to go up a lot. And then he lied about it afterwards. Like, I never said that. And then John Stewart trotted out the clip and was like, here's you saying that. And this is supposed to be, CNBC is supposed to be like the financial business expert news channel where they tell you everything that's going on. You know, like I love my mom, but my mom watches CNBC and, and looks at the ticker at the bottom of the screen and listens to them talk and thinks I think that these you are, should consider that a personal failure. On your I, part. I do. I do. Cause these are people who, you know, they got their nice suits on and they're talking in a professional way. And it's like, it, it gives, it's the Kabuki theater of seriousness mm -hmm. and intelligence. Mm -hmm. But then if you actually hold what they predict and what they say up against what happens, not only are they wrong, they're catastrophically wrong because their whole job is to just be a propaganda arm of 
big business in America and the financial institutions. Well, and it's not even separate. Like, that's who their guests are. They bring them like, on. joining us now. To do their propaganda. Head of XYZ Bank. And they bank, don't push back Head on of them. XYZ Corporation. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, they just bring them on it's to like when, propagandize. It's like when you bring on, you know, a retired general who's now on the payroll of Raytheon to tell you that war is necessary in Syria and we got to go in there. Yes. That's the equivalent of that, just on the business side of stuff. And so, yeah, they, they I think, I honestly think... This might be a little bit of a stretch. I'll just say it's a tie between how bad the impact on the country is with Fox News and with CNBC. I think they have equally negative effects. Yeah, the only thing is CNBC is less uh, watched than Fox. Yeah, it's but a they fairly also have, niche audience. But see, the thing is, they also have Fox News to a large extent almost comes as advertised now. Nobody's buying the fair and balanced thing anymore. You're the Republican propaganda network. That's what you are. Yeah. But CNBC and Fox Business still have like the facade of serious people talking about serious things in a neutral way. Yeah. It's just not that. It's one of those things, too, where because they can use sort of technical financial jargon, right? you feel like they're really smart that yeah. they understand things that you don't understand when the truth is, like, they're just they're just bullshitting you. Exactly. And perfect example of another example of Kramer being wrong is right before Netflix and, like, Peloton and these stocks completely crashed. He was like, bye, they're great. Yeah, great deal. And then they just, like, fall off a cliff. James, our producer, was saying that there's actually, like, a Twitter account that tracks everything Jim Cramer says to do and does the opposite. Yeah. And is, like, tremendously, like, outperforming the market. Totally. Doing extremely well. So it's not even, like, it's not even just a crapshoot 50-50. He's wrong, like, an extraordinary percentage of the time. And, and by the way, <laughs> compare that to... The Nancy Pelosi tracker. Right, which like, is whatever, on the money. <laughs> whatever people in Congress are buying, like, go buy that now because that they have the inside information and they're breaking the law to get it, you know? But it's but if you track them and you copy it, yeah. you're yeah. going to be wealthy. You're follow, be wealthy. follow the Pelosi stock tracker and do the opposite of what Jim Cramer is telling you to do. Exactly. All right, guys, let's get to our guests. We have Harvey J.K. He's Professor Emeritus of uh, Democracy at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He's also the author of a number of books, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Fight for the Four Freedoms. That's the speech we were talking about. Take hold of our history, Make America Radical, and FDR on Democracy. Um, we are also going to be joined by Alan Minsky. He's a lifelong activist. He worked as a progressive journalist for two decades. He's also executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Let's get to it. Gentlemen, great to see you both. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's been too long. It has been way too long. I definitely agree with that. Um, so you all have been engaged in a sort of project to lay out an economic vision that you believe uh, elected progressives in particular and candidates should embrace. Harvey, why don't you just lay out for us what you've been up to? Okay, so this is something I've been pushing for for years, and it's decidedly within the progressive and left tradition in America, the idea of an economic bill of rights. It originates, as you well know, back in the, ni in ni in the 1940s, though in fact it actually began in, the in 1932 when FDR was running for president for the first time, and he actually gave a speech out in California at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in which he said it was time, I'm going to paraphrase, to take back America from industrial capital, from the Gilded Age corporate folk. And he said one, that what we need to do is go back and, and recreate the kind of social contract that existed or the promise that existed as a consequence of the Declaration of Independence. So he said it was time for us to move into, the, into a social economic kind of, of social contract. And he called it an economic declaration of rights. And that was 
right away made public and he won the presidency a month later. And he returned to that over and over again. In fact, during the 1930s New Deal period, he had commissioned the National Resources Planning Board to consider a future for America and also basically to lay out the possibility of that kind of economic declaration of rights, which came to be known as an economic bill of rights. And in 1943, when FDR was seriously considering advancing the agenda that was proposed by the National Resources Planning Board, he requested from a group of Princeton University social scientists who were active across the country in running surveys and polls, he asked them to ask Americans what they wanted to see after the war, hmm. keeping in mind that the theme of the, the war slogan in many ways was the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And what they discovered in these polls is that Americans basically wanted everything. They were mm. ready to go social democratic, my term, our term. And for example, they wanted essentially 85% of Americans wanted guaranteed health care. They wanted guaranteed education as far as students' capacities could take them. And they wanted a guaranteed job at a living wage. Now, these are the kind of things that FDR had been promoting all the way through this presidency by way of social security, which he wanted to include universal health care. And he went before the country and Congress in January of 1944 and laid out an economic bill of rights. He said, look, we've come to the point in our history where we recognize the need for an economic bill of rights, a second bill of rights. And he, and he drove it home by saying that, look, needy men, now we'd say needy men and women are not free. And after the war, that's the kind of America that we're going to try to create. He offered it as a vision, a promise. He had, I doubt if he imagined it could be enacted because between the Republicans and the Southern Democrats, there was little likelihood that that conservative coalition would act quickly on that. What did come out, and I don't need to go into it, was of course the GI Bill of Rights, which was an expression of that. Now, when he finished that speech, this is an important point, when he finished that speech in 44, he said, and I'll, cl I'll close with this. Although, no, actually, I'll say one other thing. He closed with a warning. He said, we must beware of a rightist reaction. And he didn't only mean right-wing political types like the KKK or anything like that. He meant right-wing corporate leaders might well try to block these aspirations. Now, let's not forget, it didn't happen, but in 19... In the 60s, A. Philip Randolph presented a freedom budget to the United States in 65, modeled after that, and 150 leading figures in American public life, labor, education, foundations, all endorsed it. And had it not been for the Vietnam War, which drained resources from the great society efforts and war and poverty, that freedom budget, which was to drive poverty out of the country entirely, might well have been enacted. Hmm. Martin Luther King Jr., not long before his very tragic assassination, called for, in public and in an American magazine, an economic bill of rights. And as we may, may well remember, Bernie Sanders in 2019, on his website, had laid out the makings of an economic bill of rights. So he didn't take it, unfortunately, we talk about that another time, he didn't take it into the campaign. You and I talked a lot about that, Crystal, during that time. Yeah. So 
Alan and I have been talking quite a bit. I did a video with the Gravel Institute on the Economic Bill of Rights, FDRs, and we decided this would be the time. We are now facing a political crisis, a crisis, a real crisis of democracy. And it is imperative if progressives hope, hope to save democracy that they first have to advance that idea of an economic bill of rights in this election year. I'll hand over to Alan to, to take over anything else that I've yeah. left out. So, so Alan, I have, I have a question for you. Um, FDR won the presidency four times. Uh, there was a time where he had 80 percent of Congress and 80 percent of the Senate. This is uh, consistently ranked. He's ranked one of the top two or three presidents in virtually every single poll. I think the thing that frustrates me is that he left the roadmap, not just for like social democratic policy and how that could impact the country in, in, a, in a good way. He also left the roadmap map for effective politics in terms of this is what you talk about, this is what you run on, and then if you do it, hey, look, proof's in the pudding. I won four times and I had 80% of Congress and, and the Senate. So tell me, Alan, from your perspective, um, why has it not been, uh, you know, since FDR and onward, why has that not been the, the main message and the main argument and the main campaigning strategy for the Democratic Party? Well, it certainly isn't because of the results, which you point out. Um, after FDR, the Democrats controlled the U.S. House of Representatives. I mean, if you add up the years, I think it's 58 out of 62 years. Mm. And then after 1994, when you have the sort of final um, neo sort of components of the neoliberalization of the Democratic Party with the first two years of the Clinton presidency, you have um, we've the Democratic Party has held the U.S. House of Representatives only, I think, eight out of 28 years. Wow. So that that's pretty, all right there. pretty stunning right there. And um, yeah, no, I think if you pull back the lens and look at American society, um, uh, if you see particularly around poverty, but not just poverty, because there's intense poverty in the United States, by the way, in contrast to all of the other um, technological, industrial quote unquote, rich countries in the world, all of which, by the way, were our core allied countries throughout the Cold War. Yet only the United States has these deep pockets of poverty. And that's because those other countries basically operate with the social democratic architecture that FDR was uh, was creating back in the 30s. Uh, they adopted it in the post-Cold War period and maintained it, you know, with some hiccups relating to the neoliberal era of the past 30 years, but basically it's still in place. So you have deep pockets of poverty in the United States, and they basically exist in two areas. One is in, of course, the um, inner cities of the major metropolitan population centers, and the other is spread around rural America and small town America. Now, they're both extremely conspicuous, and you have one group voting for one party, and now one group voting for the other party. If you pull back the lens enough, it is just a classic divide and conquer of the working class. And what would unify their interests would be an economic bill of rights. Harvey, you um, made the case or started to make the case that securing such an economic bill of rights was vital in order to save democracy. Just lay out for us in explicit terms how you see these things as being connected. Well, OK, I mean, for 45 years, we have witnessed nothing less than a class war on the working class. I mean, it, it began during the 1970s and Tragically so, it began actually 
in the Democratic Party with with Jimmy Carter. Okay, in 1978, he turned his back on the environmental movement, the labor movement, the consumer rights movement, and he pursued a decidedly what we now call neoliberal agenda, deregulation, lowering of taxes, and in fact, uh, brought Volcker into the into the Federal Reserve and drove up unemployment dramatically, to which utterly undermined labor and essentially, essentially bolstered the the efforts throughout the decade by big business to to smash labor. Okay, so I mean, it was really forty five years this this went on. I mean, Carter. Let's let's not even talk about the Republicans. Republicans do what Republicans do. Okay, they will always seek to smash labor. They will always seek to deregulate business. They will always seek to limit government. They will always seek to lower taxes, as we've seen. But the Democrats themselves, over and over again, acted as if they were really at best Republicans. I mean, think about. Well, I said Carter. Think about the Clinton years. Think about the Obama years. Um, it got to the point, and I, I'll speak on behalf of my fellow Wisconsinites who had to endure as well the Scott Walker and Republican legislature, which is still actually in power. It's the case that that they stripped people of their rights. They declared war on the Democratic achievements of the 30s and the 60s, and the Democrats with neoliberalism did the same. Okay, and and as a consequence, working people, okay, undeniably, especially white working people, but working people generally wanted to punch the Democrats in the nose. And of <laughs> course, I mean, seriously speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people who just re- literally wanted to do that. And then, of course, when in 2016, we saw how the Democratic establishment and, and the corporate order crushed Bernie's campaign. And, you know, I mean, how many people told me, my students who would say, you know, my parents would have voted for, uh, for, Trump, for, uh, for, for Bernie, but they voted for Trump. Okay, because Hillary's not to be trusted. You know, look at look at what the Clintons do. So then the next time around in 2020, well, you and I went through that together in some ways when I was a guest on Rising. It was it was astonishing. So what's the cure, so to speak? Well, the cure is to for the Democratic Party, which I have little confidence the leadership will would pursue this. But for the Democratic Party, propelled by progressive activism to recover to restore, to redeem the very vision and the very agenda that literally created the great, as, as, as Kyle was saying, you know, a, a series of successful presidential campaigns that lifted up Americans and actually reduced inequality. In fact, it began a, a reduction of inequality that extended from the late 1930s into the early 1970s that witnessed social security, an active labor movement, the creation of rights for not only whites in the South, but rights for African-Americans. I mean, we could just go through the list. So, I mean, right now, the Democratic Party is literally the Republican Party of the past. The Republicans are the party of the 19th century. And if, if we do not advance a vision that challenges this order and that engages the American imagination, which is fundamentally, to my mind, progressive, if not radical, then we will actually see a debacle in November and even worse in 2024. Now, uh, by the way, what you're saying is is quite literal because uh, there's a 
famous clip of Obama. I don't know why it's not more famous than it is, but he admits like, yeah, my politics are that of like a 1980s moderate Republican. Like he just comes out and says it. So um, you actually taught me something there that I did not know. I thought that really the full corporatization of the Democratic Party happened with Bill Clinton and um, the DLC in the early 90s, but apparently Jimmy Carter actually started moving in that direction, and then I guess Clinton just put it on steroids. Um, so, Alan, tell me and tell the audience a story about FDR taking on entrenched power and winning and, you know, something that, that people wouldn't know, but if they heard about it now, they'd think, I can't imagine, like, Joe Biden doing that or Barack Obama doing that, you know? Um, well, obviously, um, you know, I welcome their hatred uh, is the famous quote from FDR. But uh, I really do have to defer and then toss that question over to the historian of FDR, uh, who's in our midst, Harvey J.K. Why don't you take a crack at that one, Harvey, because I think you can do a more thorough job than I can. OK, the, the rich in America thought that they expected things to happen in the New Deal, but they figured that if they supported FDR, that they would actually avoid getting their taxes raised because FDR would end prohibition and you could tax alcohol and, and beer, you know, and you could actually just tax beer. And they were shocked to discover that in that the National Industrial Recovery Act included not some, you know, which accompanied later the, by the pro, end of prohibition. They discovered that FDR, this is in 1933 in the National Industrial Recovery Act, they, they discovered that that included the right of workers to organize, which later had to be really enforced in the National Labor Relations Act. It included the raising of taxes. And for all of the efforts of FDR to include capital inside of the, if you like, the, the recovery effort, it was the case that he also, for every one of these initiatives, he included either consumer activism in it, you know, consumer voices, labor voices, farmers' voices. So they got to the point where they realized they were in trouble. And in 1934 and 35, they created the American Liberty League. And the American Liberty League declared war on FDR. They spent, you know, huge sums of money to try to bring down his presidency. There were even those who conspired to possibly overthrow him in a coup d'etat. Well, what they failed to do is they failed to mobilize any grassroots. There were they were incapable of speaking to the American working class and the American working class was already enamored with the New Deal. So as F, as as Alan said, it, there came that moment in the campaign of 1936 in which FDR turned around and said. Hey, look. I welcome their hatred, but there's a really great line in the speech that when he accepts the uh, the nomination anew in 1936 for the for the Democratic Party uh, campaign. And he said, you know, basically these economic royalists complain that we want to overthrow American institutions. And I'll paraphrase and say, no, it really is the case. We want to overthrow their power. He was blunt about it. So, I mean, the working class loved him for that very reason. There was a great letter that a textile worker down in the Carolinas sent to the White House said, you're my president. You know my boss is a son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is incredible. Um, you know, Alan, there's a whole conversation happening right now among sort of like Beltway types about how, you know, Democratic Party looks like they're going to get shellacked once again in the midterms. And this is really the fault of the left. Um, you know, they leaned into issues that aren't popular. Defund the police wasn't popular. 
And now Republicans are set to take back control of the House and the Senate. Um, what do you make of and what is your response to that conversation? Oh, boy, I want to see something like Boulder Dash, but I think that's Teddy Roosevelt language. Not <laughs> um, It's absolute. You know, it's, it's junk. Um, look, um, there are um, obviously the United States of America has incredibly fraught history and uh, the legacy of uh, uh, inequality and injustice in the society is rife. It's apparent to anybody who has their eyes open to it. These issues need to be addressed. Um, and, um, you know, how they're addressed and, you know, the particularities of the language of how they're addressed, really, they have provided the right wing with these kind of talking points where they can really sort of beat on, uh, on the left for its academies or its, its woke language. And you can see from the polls, these are, these are not particularly popular. Um, and what I would say is what the left has to do is, of course, not abandon um, the uh, campaigns and the movements that are calling for, you know, an end, an end or a, a limitation to the prison industrial complex so that we have a less racist and more fair justice system, um, that we limit the amount of, you know, police violence there is, the police are accountable for their acts, all of these things. There's no way that these should be in any way, uh, sh you know, shape or form be abandoned. And that, of course, extends to LGBTQ plus rights, which, of course, the right wing is also exploiting for talking points, um, which they do because, you know, they pay top dollars to their consultants. They repeat their messaging over and over and over again ad nauseum and, you know, the attacks on critical race theory and so on. OK, all of that stuff. And I, I'm not going to say that we should be defending specifically critical race theory. That's another debate. But the whole question about teaching the real history of the United States. Yes, we should support those things. OK, but what we need to do is elevate what is most important about the progressive movement to the general American public, and that is economics. And if you look at the messaging of progressives in the Democratic Party, there's a real absence of that. Even when you look at the Green New Deal and you look at polling, and I, of course, we at PDA completely support the Green New Deal. Uh, we ask our candidates to sign on to the Green New Deal pledge. It's a great program, but clearly in its messaging, it is understood primarily to be about the environment. In other words, the green part is heard the New Deal part is heard much less. Mm -hmm. And when you look at people's prioritization of issues, what's the top issue right now among the American public? You know, it's not Ukraine that I don't think there's any new polling out yet since the Roe v. Wade decision. But before that, again, it was economics. And consistently over the last four decades, it's economics. The Democratic Party, the progressives, sorry, not the Democratic Party, not at all the Democratic Party, the very new, clear political formation of progressives within the Democratic Party in the wake of the 2016 Sanders campaign, they need to distinguish themselves from the mainstream of the Democratic Party by emphasizing the economic contract that they represent to the American public. And how, well, American, how, well, how well do you think that they're doing at that? I would say that Bernie was exceptional at it out of the gate in the 2016 election campaign, a little less so, but still, of course, very good and why he was ascendant among that incredible pool of candidates. There were 16, 18 candidates in 2020. We remember expectations were that he wouldn't catch fire again, but he did. And I think at the core of it, again, was his economic message. But um, I, I think ever since his start in 2016, it hasn't been as foregrounded as it would need to be to really have it become what it is, which is, um, well, what it is, is it, it's the policies that would be supported by the majority of Americans. And, and at least provide much, much more support from huge communities to the Democratic Party. And let's understand there's a split in the Democratic Party, so to the progressives in the Democratic Party. But um, the messaging is not foregrounded enough. It's lost 
in um, in in a, a muddle of other other ways of focusing upon things, and it really does a disservice to the really existing progressive bloc of the Democratic Party. Whatever criticisms we we might want to make about how effective they are or have been um, in Congress, if you look at what they did during the Build Back Better, uh, which which completely dominated. Um, everything that was going on up on Capitol Hill over um, the first last year, basically the first half of the 116th Congress, 117th Congress, sorry, it was all about tightening and strengthening the economic measures that were put forward and build back better. That was the work that the progressive bloc did. And if they were to campaign on that stuff, it basically adds up to an economic bill of rights. They need to have a central framing message to explain to the American people that we represent this. Moderate Democrats, when it's primary season, do not represent this. We do. Of course, the Republican Party in the general election doesn't either. If you want these changes in the American economy, if you want a more fair economy, earlier I spoke about the way that it addresses poverty. But as we all know, all of the issues in the Economic Bill of Rights that Harvey and I lay out, they also make for a much better life. And better life, not just a better, you know, in terms of people's bank balance and their wealth, a better life for what is now an incredibly precarious middle class. You know, it drives me crazy that conventional wisdom in D.C. is that left economics isn't popular, when, like you just alluded to, every single poll that asks about those specific issues, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's uh, universal health care or free college or eliminating student loan debt or the various provisions of the PRO Act, which is phenomenal pro-union legislation, every single one of those things, the different parts of Build Back Better, elder care, um, you know, affordable child care, affordable child care, lowering uh, retirement age, pre-K, exactly, like all that stuff, super popular, super popular, super popular. And yet, to your point, yeah, you don't see a left flank leaning into that with, you know, savvy messaging where you can sort of draw the dividing lines and say, hey, you with us or are you against us? Economic Bill of Rights, yes or no? Um, my, my question is, is this, and I'll throw it to you, Harvey. While money dominates our politics to the extent that it does today, so from the 1970s and onward, various uh, Supreme Court decisions have basically reaffirmed this notion that money is speech, and so you have effectively legalized bribery running this country. As long as money dominates our politics, will we ever get an FDR-like candidate who can win without the media and the establishment destroying them? Because I look, I'll, I'll wrap it up quick with this point, but like when I saw Trump, who clearly the Republican establishment did not want him. They wanted like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush and they went down the list. He was last on their list. Um, but he ended up destroying the entire field and sort of slipping in and winning. Now, ultimately, he ended up serving capital and serving the establishment, so it didn't matter much anyway. They just didn't like his mean tweets and the fact that he's crass, you know? But do you see something like that that can happen on the left? Or is the are the establishment, establishment Democrats so well-organized, and is the media so in the tank for the establishment Democrats that it's, like, almost impossible for an FDR-like candidate to sort of break through the system? What are your thoughts on that? Okay, well... It's something about my something about my upbringing and my and my genetic makeup that I can never say never. Okay, so let's start there. I, I actually do believe. I mean, it, it might take literally a public confrontation on a grand scale to make it happen. And I, I, I let's not forget the forces that empowered FDR are not strong today. Okay, but if 
if if it happens, if this, for example, these this past year has seen little coming out of Washington beyond the American Rescue Plan, but we have seen great energy, and I, that's the only word I can use right now because the actual organizing has has yet to take off on a full scale. We have seen incredible energy in the American working class, and I actually do believe there are forces inside of the labor movement that could transform the labor movement and empower then the progressives politically. So I, I don't see an I don't think it's an impossibility. If, it, if I believed it was an impossibility, I would actually withdraw from political life because that's how bad it, the, the future would look. Yeah. But it yeah. is the case. Look, look, consider it this way. Let me give you quick. The American Revolution, the American Civil War and the 1930s. Nobody expected that Washington himself, even when he was a commander in the field, would have embraced would have embraced independence and the making of a democratic republic. Working people in the army had read Thomas Paine and they pushed Washington to, to do so. Lincoln was definitely inclined to bring an end to slavery, but he couldn't do it until he felt constitutionally empowered to do so and pressured from the bottom up. And tens of thousands of slaves left their plantation and drove themselves basically to the union lines, demanding admission in some way to the union cause. And that gave Lincoln the chance to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. FDR knew that Americans, whether they were farmers in the upper Midwest who were refusing to deliver their goods to market, workers marching, unemployed workers throughout the country, he had this energy to work on. So what we need is this kind of, we need grassroots energy. We need it from labor and we need the progressives within Congress and the candidates who, were, who we are finding endorsing this idea of an economic bill of rights. We need people to turn out. We need to make noise. We need to bring heat. And unless, you know, look, if Biden and Pelosi and Schumer have political suicide in mind, there's not much we can do. But if they have any hope of redeeming their chances, they're going to have to start paying attention. Look, I mean, I came off a, an election last week in, in Cleveland that shattered me. Mm. Um, that what happened to Nina Turner, I found utterly unacceptable. And it leads me to believe that the sooner the Democratic Party leadership can be taken down by progressive, the better off we will all be. But in the meantime, progressives themselves have to become identified in a broad way with a vision of America rooted in the American progressive tradition. And that's what this Economic Bill of Rights does. Well, and what was so horrifying, listen, the Democratic establishment is going to do what they do, just like the Republicans are going to do what they do. But Nina was abandoned by progressives. I mean, the congressional pro so-called progressive caucus endorsing Chantel Brown. Um, the fact that, you know, people who had endorsed her last time around stayed out completely, that they totally bent to whatever pressure they were receiving, both from Democratic leadership and um, some members from the Congressional Black Caucus. The Justice Democrats didn't even come in for Nina. I mean, that's that is it's completely inexcusable on every level. And yet, Harvey, to your point, the one thing that has really given me a lot of hope recently is, listen, if Chris Smalls and the Amazon workers can beat Jeff Bezos and, you know, one of the largest companies in the entire world and unionize when they were dead set, you know, when the corporate uh, higher ups were dead set against it. That tells you anything is possible when you're scrappy, when you have grassroots energy and when the working class is united. So 
that ultimately does give me a lot of hope right now. Um, Alan, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that question from Kyle, because I do think it's a really important one. And I do see a lot of people, you know, uh, on the left, really disgusted with electoralism in general, really feeling like nothing's possible, really feeling extremely betrayed as, um, as I did by the abandonment of Nina Turner. So how do you see these things? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd be completely remiss if I didn't say that Progressive Democrats of America, PDA, fully endorsed Nina Turner. I think we probably held more events for Nina uh, in both of her special election in August and for her uh, recent uh, primary race uh, on May 3rd for Nina than we probably have for any other candidate. Um, we're very close to Nina. Harvey and I have basically been coordinating with Nina um, on this project. It was actually became an, one of the foundations of her second campaign. Um, yeah, and, um, and Progressive Democrats of America, for people who don't know, and I don't know if, if you and Kyle know this, um, you know, we were the sole national organization to draft Bernie Sanders to run as a Democrat. And if you look at the book, Our Revolution, and Bernie's going back and talking about the period, you know, we were the organization that pushed him to run in 2016. And um, we feel like we, we transformed American politics. At the time, we were a big fish in a small pool of progressive politics in America. Um, and for various institutional reasons, and I wasn't the executive director at the time, but mainly our executive director died in 2014, who was very close to Bernie. Um, we didn't really parlay that into uh, expanding the organization, though we're, we're actually growing again quite substantially right now. And uh, we certainly believe, as, as you can see from our drafting of Bernie Sanders back in 2013 and 14, we ran the Run Bernie Run campaign, that we really believe that these kind of economic issues need to be foregrounded. We need to present progressive politics as a politics that are for all American people. We think they very much are a majoritarian position. Okay, the frustrations with the Democratic Party. Having said everything that I just said about PDA, I think we know better than just about anyone, how completely and utterly rotten the um, Democratic Party establishment is, how wedded it is. It's in a completely symbiotic relationship to basically big money in the United States of America. And I think in terms of the political imagination of Democratic Party establishment leadership, they can't even imagine breaking away from, from that big money. So the question is, is what's the use value of remaining engaged with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Can it be structured in a cohesive enough way to be a party within a party with the goal of taking over the party? And that is PDA's long-term goal and always has been. Uh, is it attainable? And I think there's, there's a few things there. First of all, I think we have made much more progress than we ever did before Bernie ran for president. I think that's clear to anybody listening. We, we do have some very um, strong progressive people in, in office, and we probably will expand the number of people, even though I think this primary season is bound to be very frustrating for the progressive left, uh, you are going to see uh, a stronger progressive left progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the House caucus coming out of this election. So part of the frustrations that you're undoubtedly, uh, you know, that are real and that you're expressing are the product of what happens when you try to challenge inside a party that is completely dominated by basically uh, neoliberal conservative money. And I also think the neoliberals in the Democratic Party, they should be understand for what, understood for what they are. They're conservatives. From the Romney wing of the Republican Party through the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, they are trying to conserve and preserve the economic order that we've lived through in the last 45 years. And we know the results of that economic order. It's all the wealth going up words in society, um, incredible economic precarity for the majority of the population, and really the American dream, so to speak, is, is, is shattered at this point for the majority of the population. And that's what they're trying to conserve right now. 
And uh, we are against that. We think we have to be very clear in what we stand for. We need a very clear template for what we stand for. We need to only support politicians who will absolutely fight for that agenda once they're in office. And if they don't, next cycle, they are going to be challenged by us again in another primary. We need that kind of discipline within the progressive left. I think there's a huge appetite for it within the society and within a left activists in the country. But as you said, and I, I do not I do not deny there's incredible frustration, and I understand the grounds for that frustration at this hour. And by the way, just lastly, what they did to Nina Turner on May 3rd, they are doing to four candidates right now who are running for election in the primaries in May 17th, on May 17th. This super PAC money is pouring in, and all four of them, I would have thought three weeks ago, had a great line on winning their primaries and getting elected in November. And they're Nita Alam in North Carolina, Erica Smith in North Carolina, Summer Lee in Pennsylvania, and Jamie McLeod Skinner. They're doing the same to Doyle Canning in Oregon, though that was a long shot race compared to the other four. Those four, I thought were going to win. And now the flood of money that is coming in against those candidates from pretty much exactly the same forces that did this to Nina back in August of last year um, are swinging the elections against the progressives, though we still have a chance at winning, but we're a few days away. It's going to take a lot of focus and concentration and grassroots mobilization to get them past over the line and have them win. But the other part of that is the establishment forces were all in together, flooded the zone. Clyburn came into town. Hakeem Jeffries came into town. Hillary Clinton endorsed. Joe Biden endorsed. Like, they were unified. They wanted to not only defeat Nina, they wanted to embarrass her. And the both the, uh, you know, elected progressives and also the uh, outside of yourselves and the amazing work that you did, but a lot of the progressive institutions also, you know, just sort of stayed out, um, left her high and dry. So what do you do about that problem when even the people who are supposed to be your allies see this candidate who, if ever anyone was going to fight for the things you're talking about, it would be Nina Turner, and they just kind of sit on their hands. After you guys answer, I have an answer for that too. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, I, I, you know, I, I want to reiterate something Alan yeah. said. Nina truly embraced this economic bill of rights and, and you know now it, now it may well have been a fantasy on my part but i imagine that nina would would have gone into congress she would have given some backbone to the progressives in congress and she would have by her own talents and her own skills or oratorical skills would have literally shoved that econo our economic bill of rights onto the public agenda i believe it would have that been transformative yeah, I, I have I little that. doubt that that's what and i and by the way whether it was because of the Economic Bill of Rights, which they were already prepared to, to, you know, to block in their own fashion. The fact is that they were afraid of Nina because they they thought this would have been the moment. I don't know if you remember back when I was with you on 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 the cycle, and and I think it was Tore said to me, you know, when is this when is the vision going to happen? This FDR vision, and I said, well, the revolution starts now. Well, obviously, I was wrong, okay? <laughs> but I did believe that Nina would have been the start of that kind of transformation, and. Right now, there are other good people who are going to move in. And I think it's imperative that we support these folks and, and not chastise them. And um, look, Jessica Cisneros down in Texas. I, God forbid Cuellar can pull that one out, you know? Yeah. So, um, Alan, did you want to answer Crystal before I do? Um, you know, for, I mean, what can I say about the other organizations? I think we have to look at the organizations that really stand uh, true with strong and viable, clearly viable progressive candidates um, and don't turn their backs on them. So, yeah, I, of course, concur with that. But um, it, it doesn't in any way negate the, the need to have like what Nina was doing with the Economic Bill of Rights, what we're trying to do, which is to really 
declare and understand what it means in you know one of the problems is are we inside a two-party system is that at all malleable I, I don't think it's there's any easy route to compete electorally in the United States other than uh, inside the Democratic Party if you're on the left yeah uh, I think yeah. that I just think that's a tragic fact of our reality and so we have to do what we have to do to try to to really clarify what the progressive left stands for and to trans because of what it really does stand for and then transform that into a winning electoral formation. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah. I agree with that, by the way. Yeah, I mean, look, I always say if they step one, if you're going to do a third party thing is you have to first unrig the system to make it even theoretically possible for the third party to win. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people put the cart before the horse and that pisses me off, if I'm being honest, because then they just, they, like, you literally have no clue what you're doing and you're not actually playing to win. So, but if you, if you actually do that, and let's say you get ranked choice voting implemented, well then, yeah, I'm open to having that conversation because you could put, the, you know, the Green Party or whatever other party you want above the Democratic candidate, and then it's not like the spoiler effect. So that's step number one if you're going to go the third party route. But to answer your question from before is, um, and I know this as a, one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, when we vetted our candidates and, you know, who are we going to run, who are we going to back, um, it's one thing to agree on all the policies. And it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'm for Medicare for all, I'm for, you know, a living wage, I'm for the Economic Bill of Rights, I'm for ending the wars, et cetera, et cetera. It is a totally separate thing. Are you a leader? Because, it, yeah, if, if you don't have a leader, and if you don't have the backbone to take on the fight and be strategic, then it all comes to naught at the end of the day if you can't even get a vote on the things that we're talking about. You can't even, you know, play politics uh, effectively. You can't use the bully pulpit. You can't take on the media. And that's why, again, to bring back Nina Turner into the conversation, who we all know and love, um, I think they knew just how much she's the real deal. And so it took all the king's horses and all the king's men to beat her down in the same way that it did with Bernie Sanders, because they know. Let's say, for argument's sake, Nina slipped through and she won. Then you have one person who's a leader who would take charge, who would take the incoming fire from the media, and, you know, all it takes is one person and then the rest hop on the bandwagon. When she goes out there and she's like, this is what we're doing. We're blocking every piece of legislation from Joe Biden unless and until he takes out that executive order pen and he legalizes marijuana throughout the entire country, frees every nonviolent drug offender, and eliminates all student loan debt. And if he has a problem with that, let me say he needs to speak to the voters about why 64% of them are incorrect and he's correct and he gets to override them like a dictator. This is what Nina Turner would do. And then if you have one person out there, six, seven, eight, hop, you know, come out of the woodworks and are like, yeah, 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 I'm with her, I'm with her. And so, but we don't have that one leading voice, which is why, to bring it full circle and we can wrap it up on this, which is why when you look back at the history of FDR and what he represented, you realize just how rare and special it was. Well, and one of the things, Harvey, that I wanted to ask you about is that, that context, uh, that political context that FDR was operating in, because how much did it matter that at the time there was an active competing potential economic ideology, you know, in the world in terms of communism, whereas now you have no real, like, we won so thoroughly and the neoliberal forces have been so ascendant that there's no threat of some other, you know, active political project, economic project from around the world. So there's less pressure to do anything different than what the status quo currently is. Okay, and this is, uh, people throw this at me all the time, and so I want to, I'm going to remind everyone that there actually were two forces at that time that were a threat. One was undeniably Soviet communism. The other one was fascism. 
And in the 1930s, the greater threat to the democratic order was decidedly fascism. Okay. Mm. Now, but this is the key thing. And a guy like FDR, a good year before he ran for president, he told friends that it was time for the country to go radical for a generation. And what he meant by that is not fascism and not communism. He really meant, though the term was not his, he had in mind a social democratic transformation of America. Okay. It was all laid out when he ran finally. Historians ignore the things that he talked about in his campaign because they like to portray him as having been pushed from below alone. He came in, he excited John Lewis, head of the UMW, who was a Republican, and Sidney Hillman, who was the head of the, Ameri Al Mal sorry, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, who was a socialist. And they recognized in FDR the kind of transformation that would be possible if labor came in behind him and pushed him. Now, what we find nowadays, look, the here's the key thing. FDR trusted his fellow citizens. The Democratic leadership today just does not trust their fellow citizens. And that was evident by the way in which Joe Biden talked about redeeming the soul of America rather than the progressive tradition or the radical tradition in America. And after the American Rescue Plan, a kind of recovery act, he literally turned his back on mobilizing anyone and just kept saying, put it on my desk. That's not the way you win back America. I think that is all very well said. Um, gentlemen, we have a lot of things we could continue to talk to you about. The history of FDR in particular is endlessly interesting, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Um, thank you so much, Alan and Harvey. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. That was Harvey K. and Alan Minsky. And um, they seem to love FDR as much as I love FDR. <laughs> Yeah, I think for good reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big picture is here we are at this moment of multiple intersecting crises. Here we are with an American public that has election after election after election said we have to try something different. Like we need a new vision to move this country forward. And, you know, you got Biden who comes in, hangs the FDR portrait in his office and is like, that's pretty much I'm pr basically FDR now. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's a reason people responded very viscerally when he and his staff initially started leaking, like, oh, we're going to be like FDR and we're going to seize the moment, et cetera. And then it's just nothing. I mean, he's exactly who we thought he would be. He's exactly who he's been his entire career. And the point from Harvey and Allen is basically like, progressives, you don't have to just stand by. Like you need to create your own. You need to help the American people understand what you are actually about and that it's not just going along with whatever Joe Biden happens to be doing. FDR wouldn't piss on Biden to put out a fire. I sincerely believe that. This is a guy, Joe Biden, who's, I mean, his, his career, his history is nothing like FDR. I mean, this is a guy who was known as the backslapping politician, the bipartisan guy, the one who voted for the Patriot Act, the one who voted for NAFTA, the one who voted for Wall Street deregulation, the one who voted for the Iraq War, the one who authored part of the crime bill. And in FDR, you got somebody who was viewed as a class traitor. There's some people on the left who actually criticize him to say, no, his problem was he saved capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to save capitalism. He saved it by actually reforming it, by doing some real structural changes to it that were profound. He very famously said, could you imagine Joe Biden honestly saying, 
I welcome their hatred to the... Well, and now would be the moment because um, he just gave this big inflation speech this week where he's talking about Putin's price hike and all of this. It's like, no, a big part, not 100%, but a large part of what's going on here is corporate price gouging. But he won't, he he will only like tiptoe around saying that he'll he'll he won't call him out by name i mean the the opposite it's the the polar opposite of fdr i mean he named and shamed specific people specific companies and he went after them with the law and actually went after them and biden on the other hand is like we're gonna put together a commission or send out a memo or post something on the website you sent me the video of biden talking about these people and saying i told them to stop you to- that reminds me of the Hillary line famously from the 2016 debate when she was like, I went to Wall Street and told them to cut, cut it, it out. out. <laughs> yeah, that worked really well. Hill. Yeah, like it's embar- at this point, it's honestly embarrassing, especially because FDR, he used the power of the pen, too. He was executing executive ordering like a mofo. And threatened to pack the court. Threatened to pack the court. Didn't he actually Which do stuff with the heal? courts? Don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> he may have. <laughs> but he threatened to pack the Supreme Court because they were threatening to strike down a bunch of New Deal legislation, some of which they did. And just the fact of him credibly threatening it sort of brought them to heel and was really significant in terms of making sure that the New Deal actually got through. He ended the Lochner era on the Supreme Court. Do you know what the Lochner era is? This is this is really right up your alley. This is stuff that I, this has stuck with me ever since I got my uh, poli-sci degree mm-hmm. because was, I remember just being fascinated in class learning about this. The Lochner era was an era that was defined by the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution as having what's called a right to contract. And the whole idea of a right to contract is, hey, if a business owner and the employee agree on something, agree on the terms for the employee to work for the business owner, the federal government is not allowed as a third party to jump in and say, I have terms and rules that go along with this. So basically what the Supreme Court ruled for a, a generation is that child labor laws unconstitutional, minimum wage laws unconstitutional. And it's typically viewed as a judicially activist but politically conservative court. That was the era, the Lochner era. Now, one could argue we're sort of entering a new one now. Yes, for sure. Uh, with, with the Supreme Court. But it took FDR to come along to change that actually flex his power to have a real ideology that was more of a social democratic ideology and really to channel the will of the people and then enforce that on our institutions and let them know like no no we're not playing around like when i say we're going to do the new deal we're going to do redistributive policies here we're going to tax the wealthy we're going to redistribute it we're going to do jobs programs we're going to build infrastructure we're going to make the courts not psychotic believing in like imagine interpreting the constitution as if like we can only do unfettered laissez-faire capitalism. Right. You don't even have the opportunity at the state level, uh, local level, or federal level to change that. Right. Yeah, and it's one thing, Biden is who he is, right? We're not surprised by him governing the way that he's governing. But then when you have an American left that's also so afraid of being hated by these same forces, they're okay with taking, you know, the heat from like CEOs in Wall Street, but they're so f- afraid of the media coming after them. And that was the other thing about FDR. I mean, newspapers almost unanimously endorsed against him, leading academics and economists. And he won four opposed, times. 
Right. And Four he, times. and again, he welcomed their hatred. So I think that's also a really important like divergence between today's American left that are so anytime the media starts to criticize them, they just crumble. Anytime the Democratic establishment starts to criticize them, they just crumble. And the posture and stance that he had. Yeah, I would say that when you talk about the American left in terms of electoral politics, it's yeah. like the Congressional Progressive Caucus is mostly just full of frauds. They're not actually progressive. Correct. They're just standard corporate Democrats. But of the people who are actually progressive, and you could have a debate over how many there are in in D.C., you know, maybe that debate ranges anywhere from like, there's four of them to like, <laughs> there's 14 of them. Like, that's the, <laughs> yeah, the, that's the, the you know, that's the, that's, you know, the spectrum there. But um, I would argue that those people who actually do ideologically agree with me and you and have some flavor variety of a modern version of FDR's politics that, um, to your point, they're weak, they're cowardly, they don't have the backbone or the, or the spirit to fight. And so it's like, let me go along to get along and notch tiny little victories here and there where I can while playing within the system. And that's been an abysmal failure, an abysmal failure. People have this, in history, people have this problem of like, saying things are impossible, and then after you win on it, it becomes, well, that was inevitable. That was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Rarely do people look at history accurately where they say, no, it was hard work and leadership and dedication and focus every step of the way to get from point A to point B. And people just don't want to, at least in terms of elected officials, even if they do agree, they don't want to put in the hard work. They don't have the dedication. They want to be they liked. They don't know what it takes. And I get they it. They want to be liked. Right? I like to be liked as well, but that's not the job you signed up for. True true. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching. Um, if you enjoy what we do here, we would love for you to sign up for a paid subscription to Substack. But if that is out of your means, not a problem. You can still sign up at Substack and still get the newsletters and still get the audio as soon as it comes out and all of that good stuff for everybody who supports the show um, and enables us to do what we do and pay our great crew and have the set and all of the setup that we do. We so love you and so appreciate you. And we will see you here next week. <laughs>